Welcome to episode 17 of Expanding Beyond. Uh, this is the Arctic winter episode here in <laughs> Munich. <laughs> it's like minus 16, 17 degrees Celsius at night here. Uh, probably spring for some of our American listeners. Uh, but for here, it, that is sort of uh, happens maybe once a winter or something that it yes. gets that cold. But it was a nice day, wasn't it? I mean, it was sunny and you just... Yes. Lovely. Didn't want to go into the shade, just stay in the sun. It was fine. Yes. So the, the sun was tricking you into going out and then you would seriously regret it. Uh, but uh, overall, it's 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 a, it's a good change of scenery uh, compared to the clouds of the last few months. Yeah, that is certainly true. All right. Um, today's topic... Uh, are knowledge knowledge silos. Um, I think I put that uh, on our list of topics a while ago uh, when I had to work on some code of a developer that had left some months ago. And that's why it says avoid knowledge silos. Arr, basically. And people, let me tell you, there's three exclamation marks. So it's really angry. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. So we decided uh, to tackle that topic today. Um, so I think there's two two main questions uh, or two main things to discuss here. One is why are knowledge silos bad? Are they always bad or are there exceptions? If you don't agree that most of the time they are bad, <laughs> then you have to uh, discuss how uh, can you avoid them um, and how what to do when they've been there and how to to get out of it. Mm -hmm. So for me, I mean, the the standard thing to talk about uh, knowledge silos is, of course, the bus factor. So that is basically how many people uh, of your team can uh, get hit by a bus when they walk across the street and you can still uh, continue working. Um, <laughs> I love that metaphor. <laughs> yeah, it's so nice. It's really on point, yes. Yeah. Um, and to me, that extends not only to someone um, basically leaving uh, your company, but it can also just be that that person is either sick or on holiday. And then it's basically maybe not as bad, but it can also uh, lead to issues. I mean, there's a reason why we have redundancy in backup systems, right? There's that. So there's always the fact that it takes, if if you have just one person doing stuff, uh it just takes a while for someone to to get up to speed. And you can either do that later, basically when that person is gone, and then it just takes a few weeks or I don't know for how long, or you do it uh, while the other person is there. And then basically stuff just takes a bit longer for them or you just, but you also have sort of the help there to sort of have someone guide yes. you and you don't have to learn everything yourself and make all the mistakes again that the other person probably did. But even if the person is still there and you are in a typical team, you do code uh, reviews, pull request reviews and stuff like that. I think their knowledge silos are also a problem because how can you review a code that you, you are not familiar with, right? Absolutely. So basically just, okay, here's your diff. You say it's fine, then I guess... I'll just give you, you my thumbs up and that's it. So there isn't really much of a discussion happening. 
yeah, the discussion is very shallow usually because as a reviewer, seriously, what, what can you do? Like, if you really want to start, if you want to understand all the implications, it takes time. Otherwise, it's mostly like, and usually you don't have a weak time just to understand the code underneath, right? Like you are supposed to, usually a PR is not, shouldn't, by the way, be that far from the moment in which you merge it, because then we you have other problems in, in that case. Um, yeah. uh, so see merge conflicts and blah, blah, blah. But it's, it's also a matter of like how much effort you have to put into something, then the, the conversation is not that it's not that deep and it's usually just graze the the surface with i don't know comments on style or or things like that um yeah tests do help a bit because they allow you to pick up uh the 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 context a little bit faster but it's again on the surface and then you of course brought up the great question of when our knowledge silos are actually useful right yeah, so I was thinking like there there should be a moment in which this knowledge silos might be uh uh useful. What I was thinking in when I when I when I wrote this question was uh, first of all I wanted to hear your uh your opinion but I was thinking of like seriously seriously big companies. It's like our systems even even in companies our size usually the systems are quite complex already. So, for example, in 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 my company at the moment, it the having a deep knowledge on one of our services or even on one part of one of our services takes some time to get to. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where another instance in which you want to avoid a knowledge silos because if the company is not big enough, then you might have multiple teams at some point working on the same part of the code. And then it gets, it it just slows you down when you have to pick up a new a new area that uh, of the code that you don't you are not familiar with. So the productivity of the team like slowly slightly decreases uh, at at that point in time. But then when you look at systems that are extremely complex, and I'm talking about you know a, a company with already like 200 engineers or um, or something like. I don't know. We're talking about Netflix, stuff like that. Silos mm-hmm. are necessary for the same reason you modularize your code. Like you yeah. th- like the system is just too big to to be understandable by by everyone. Therefore, what you want to have is nice interfaces, but then whatever happens inside of like I don't want to know. That's not my <laughs> it's not my turf and uh, and I I shouldn't do that. I, I shouldn't I, I shouldn't go in there and, and I shouldn't have to to really understand how how things are uh, you how you can use them let's say uh, so there I was thinking that if you want your organization to scale then silos are actually useful if you work with them in a certain way so the code shouldn't be the metaphorical code shouldn't be uh, obfuscated uh, <laughs> should be accessible somehow and that's something that uh i i wanted to add how do you avoid uh this uh, this knowledge silos documentation people <laughs> documentation <laughs> yeah. yeah 
Yeah, that's a good point. I had only um, sort of thought along, along the lines of where this topic had come from for me, which was basically in a really, really small company where one person basically knows about stuff. And there, of course, you, that's basically the thing you want to avoid, sort of the bus factor of one. And I think this is sort of the steps you have to go through in, in, if, in, in a startup, right? In the beginning, mm -hmm. I think it's it's perfectly fine to have some knowledge silos because you have very few people and to you have to be as efficient as you can be. Um, so you have just certain people uh, do their thing and then they're fast and it sort of works. And then eventually you have to transition out of that mode because you have more people and you want to have more than one person work on certain things. But you're right, eventually you need to sort of take a step back again from that and split up your system. And I don't know, maybe a team can be a knowledge silo, at least on the very technical level. I mm. guess that is then fine. They have come back to the to the question, uh, how do you, uh, I don't know, handle the commu communication between teams? Because there you sort of have some some knowledge that needs to be accessible to everyone and you have to sort of work towards the same goal and stuff like that so again it comes back to uh communication like yeah. <laughs> like every like, time you see i see these patterns repeating over and over again because probably we're like we're looking at systems from different angles but fundamentally it's the same underlying uh structure like in code we're talking about modularizing things because then there it's easy to uh, to understand uh it's easy to change it mm -hmm. or we're talking about um writing code that it's understandable by everyone and having tests so that your code is documented like you might have documentation external to your to your code but it's still documentation somewhere here we are talking about redundancy for example so again how do you make a system more re resilient? You build redundancy parts, uh, uh, redundant parts. Um, so in this case, you have a bus factor of uh, more than one. Another thing that was coming to mind now when while, while you were talking about the bus factor and, and how early in a startup life you decide to, you know, like, okay, th this is good enough. It's the same thing with code or it's the same thing with um, your, your design. Uh, I would even call it tech, still technical debt. Like the fact that you have uh, a knowledge silos, it is technical debt because mm -hmm. it, it's organizational debt. There, there are some people that are already using this this term uh, there. It's like it's something that willingly and and consciously you will need to. Sorry, not consciously, but intentionally, you should be aware of that you pay and that like you are investing. That's okay, but at some point you will need to avoid that and and to to get back to an healthy state, so that then you can go to the next uh, to the next level. Let's say, and if you don't do that, you're gonna be in pain or at risk. So it's not only a risk of a bug popping up, but it could be that something goes seriously bad in your in your system, and you need to replace that part. And guess what? There's no one to tell you how to do that. So I, I, I start to see these parallels between, uh, I, I keep actually seeing this parallel between how the a system in code is and, and what is the behavior that we're uh, 
uh, that we would like to see in there. We, we recognize as software engineers, that is a healthy characteristic of a, of a, of a system. Mm-hmm. And we should just pour that into an organization setting. Um, imagine the single responsibility principles. Like you want a team when it's, when you start to have, when your system becomes too complex, then you want to have teams that are specialized in certain things. And in this case, it's the same. Like when you have a class that becomes too big, then there's another class hidden somewhere. You just have to extract it and make it autonomous. All right. So we're done for today. That was it. <laughs> Thank you for coming. <laughs> Thank you for coming, for coming to my TED Talk. Uh, <laughs> no, I think you have a very uh, good point here. Um, and I think they go hand in hand. Like, you, you were uh, you were saying that to avoid um, knowledge silos, one of the tools you can use is pair programming, either completely or just as a rough idea on how to do things. Like someone walks yeah. you through the code or something like that. Yeah. And then another point you added was that, you know, you have to ensure that others do pick up working on that part of the system and not just the expert because yes you're going to be faster i i had this conversation with with my pm it's like yes like when you think about uh, people to involve into a discovery into a conversation on on a on a thing you want to develop don't pick always the same people it's like if you don't ask me who to pick that's fine i don't care but don't pick only the the the, the person that you have always gone to um because then not everybody will be up to speed. And then that person becomes the single point of failure. And believe me, you don't want to do that. But I think there it is uh, important that this is sort of basically, let's call it allowed, right? So that you mm-hmm. as who are, whoever, you as the manager of whoever, whatever team you're talking about, that you say it's, that it is okay for someone else to pick that up and then it takes longer and that you actually want to have it that way so that more people can work on more diverse things because sometimes I think that people just avoid these things also because they think yeah but it will take me just so much longer and maybe I can just do something else that is uh, feels more efficient for the team and that's why people you still need managers yes because again you need someone to look at the system from a different angle than the people within it well I'm being very philosophical today (laughs) for a, for a split second, I was thinking about quantum physics and, and the scientists observing the experiment. I'm like, ee. Um, <laughs> that's too, too much, too much. But yeah, definitely. I mean, in the end, it's a matter of trying to optimize, find an optimization that is not to the extreme. And yes, at the beginning, it takes a little bit of time, but the, the more you rotate uh, within sanity boundaries um because i mean if you rotate people every couple of weeks on things they completely are they are completely unaware you're not doing yourself a favor either um but yeah within a team like we're talking about like two developers three developers that's that's on the same technology that that makes sense so the one exception i would make to this is I don't know, greenfield projects for the first, I don't know, few weeks. Mm-hmm. There, I find it pretty difficult if you have more than one person working on that because there's still so much changing. And I found that it is maybe more more efficient there to say, hey, for the first w- few weeks, that one person 
really thinks about stuff and writes the first running, let's call it prototype maybe, and then you slowly uh, start uh, adding more people. And you would you just... would you only write it in code? I don't know. I mean, mostly yes, because uh, 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 what I found is that it is super important to get that up and running as quick as possible, because mm-hmm. even as a developer, uh, you normally don't really know what you want. <laughs> oh yeah, that's that's for sure. So you want uh, that really simple system that is then hopefully already uh, going into production as fast as possible, and then you see what what needs to change and how to mm. adjust. Because I was thinking last time I did something like that, and I I can't really remember. Like in my team, yes, we had a case in which like one specific developer wrote started writing down like what what would have been then a let's say complete new system, and they did it on their own. So yeah, that's true. I had that kind of experience. But me, myself, this was one of the engineers in my team. But me, myself, when last time I remember doing something like that, it was now quite some time ago. And we had to uh, to do this uh, extraction of our, um, let's call it activation system. So when you when you purchase, you, your access to our product is activated. Mm-hmm. And in that case, what I remember was that, so we were three people to to work on on that there was one person that was though responsible for actually coming up with the design of it so he would ask our opinion and and stuff like that but fundamentally it was him analyzing the previous system trying to find the things that were missing what didn't work what instead worked well and then sketching down the the design is like okay so we're going to use this we're going to use that this is how it, it should work the flow and so on and then the three of us together we executed on it i was super junior at that point in time in the company so i, I seriously did probably like a small part of uh, wrote a small part of the code but mm-hmm. um so i guess we are basically the more i think about it we basically mean the same thing. So yeah. in the, I did that a few months ago where I started out with a new uh, application for our ecosystem and I wrote the first bits and then basically I was responsible then for writing the uh, all the stories to, to move stuff over. And then of course I did some of them, but uh, basically the other developers also picked some up and then mm-hmm. we paired on a few things and we tried stuff out and then of course, there were also things that I I hadn't thought about that needed to change, but yeah, yeah. So in this case, also a silo would be useful in the very beginning of of a project. Like you have this one person building kind of like a demo to some extent, like you know a zero point one kind of system. Yeah, I mean that's basically mm-hmm. what we did, right? I I yeah. built that f- system with basically the first tiny feature that we could put into production. And then I mm. uh, had the others look at the code and I gave a small presentation on how I thought the design of the various parts would look. Ah, nice. And then there was some some feedback on uh, key points from the CTO and other people on what they think uh, should still be included. And then basically that's how, how mm-hmm. we got started. 
Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. But again, yeah, communication, then you see like documentation. I mean, I, I speak a lot about documentation, but what I actually mean is find ways to communicate with people what your intentions were, how to use things. Um, and it, it can be written down, it can be a video, it can be whatever, but find ways to communicate asynchronously <laughs> about mm-hmm. that stuff somehow. Um, something that becomes permanent once you are gone, because otherwise what then ends up happening is you have this tribal knowledge that gets, if you're lucky, it stays pretty sharp in people's minds. If you don't have too high of um, uh, uh, of a uh, turnover, mm-hmm. but as soon as you start watering down, for example, the amount of uh, the ratio of seniors to juniors, or uh, I mean, not only in terms of skills, but especially in terms of seniority, like, sorry, tenure within the company, then it gets, you know, this, it it becomes more like a Chinese telephone game and then you lose the details uh, over over time. Yeah, and then it takes a few months before you rediscover why the original system was designed the way it was. And then you have to revert a lot of things to get back to it. If you ever, if you ever. I mean, that's that's what happened to me uh, when one of the developers left and I took over one of the projects. I thought, why is that being done that way? And I changed stuff. And then after a while, I realized, oh, that's why. And that's yeah. why what I'm doing right now is so difficult because that was a good idea. And what I'm doing here is just produces a lot of bugs. So I have to basically go back and align it with the original design again. Yeah, that's why I'm becoming more and more of a fan of uh, design documents. It's like I, I haven't used them a lot, but also because, I mean, usually design documents are supposed to be there for like, you know, uh, substantial changes or or new projects. But one thing that really, that at first when I when I saw it, I was like, oh, why, why are they doing that? Like this list of, you know, alternative designs, like what's the point? But then I realized there are so many questions usually because like it's obvious, let's call it this way. It's obvious that the system is designed in a certain way. But why didn't you pick this other alternative? What are the things that made you discard that idea? Because that idea would also work, right? Mm -hmm. But there are pros and cons for all of them. And at least you have a record of, uh, it doesn't have to be extremely detailed, but there's a record of why that you didn't pick that road. So that others might also avoid <laughs> falling into that 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 trap. <laughs> uh, yeah. Although sometimes it's just a matter of history, right? So in the yeah. beginning you started doing one thing, and then a year later you sort of had to pivot, and then you still have some of the rem- remnants in there, and that's also sometimes definitely how these things happen. Fundamentally, that that's that's why you wanna you wanna look at you wanna have a record of these things. Because, you know, like you, you don't, you might not know the domain as, as good as you think. And then, yeah. I mean, stuff stays with you for for quite some time. <laughs> yeah. Especially if you are in, uh, I think, mobile guys out there, call me out if I'm saying bullshit. But <laughs> especially if you are in a back-in position, 
It's like the fact that you have to maintain backwards compatibility or that's how we do it in my in my company. We are expected to maintain backwards compatibility uh, up to a certain uh, version because I mean you you can't every time you release something lose like 20% of your <laughs> of your customers it doesn't yeah. sound very smart right um so you know it that that stuff haunts you down if you don't think about it in a certain way yeah and sometimes you wonder why stuff is still there and then you realize oh there's this percentages of percentage of users that are still using it and you sadly can't get rid of it how would you measure how bad in in how bad of a situation you are i mean coming from a b2b um uh company it's basically if you have one customer using it then it has to stay <laughs> yeah B2B, as simple yeah. as that because moving um once they have a running system your customers will very very rarely upgrade and change stuff because why would they that's just uh going to cost the money and it's might uh, introduce bugs and fail and stuff like that. So it's probably even even more problematic than when you when you're in the mobile space where you have to. I mean, at least these days, for most platforms, you have automatic uh, updates mm -hmm. eventually, at least. But in this case here, we're talking about I don't know your customers with you for five years, and of course, he's not going to change yeah. how he does things. So that API better stay how it is, right? And even there. Like what I notice is that most of our customers do update like 90%. Like this is a circa 90%. Don't, don't, don't quote me exactly on that, on that number. But uh, most of the people, and I'm seriously talking about the majority of the people do upgrade immediately. But there is this long tail of people that, that don't update uh, for reasons. It's like some of them cannot. For example, they have a very old phone, especially on 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 Android devices. That's that's normal, especially because usually Android devices are used in uh, in countries that might not have the same economical prowess as the Western world. So they mm -hmm. use old devices that cannot update past a certain point. Um, and there it depends on your market, like where where is the majority of your audience. We, we might be talking about, you know, literally thousands or tens of thousands of people. And, you know, again, that's money, right? Um, so yeah. what, what we, what we did in our, in our company, my company is that at some point we, uh, agreed with our, uh, product people. It's like, okay, when we hit this threshold, we're allowed as engineering, we are allowed to just, you know, cut off that's deprecated we do have a, a especially for for things that we really want to deprecate like this is seriously bad we have to get rid of it we do have a process around it so uh first we try to encourage most of the people via i don't know newsletters uh, push notifications stuff like that then you have what we call a soft uh, upgrade request so we we present a pop-up in the app And mm -hmm. every time someone uh, opens the app, it's like, hey, in a few months, we'll be deprecating this version. Update, please. And after a certain point in time, we have what we call a hard update pop-up. And this is something that literally doesn't allow you to use the app at all. Okay. And then you're completely cut off. But we're talking about like 
probably we are talking in terms of like 1%, not even of, of the user base. Back in a year or so, so I don't know now because, I mean, when you talk about percent, it always depends on how big the 100% is. So yeah, yeah, 1% might be very little at some point, but it can be a lot at another. Yeah. So yeah, there's that. Uh, yeah. And then those, and then you're, you're lucky if you're in a position to even uh, know uh, what part of that API is really useful yeah. still. And Why, uh, how exactly it works and which of the features are the actual crucial ones. And when stuff is in production for so long, then sometimes it's uh, the knowledge also just you forget stuff mm. because you don't work on it anymore. And then you wonder, why is this customer doing it like that? Is that really necessary <laughs> or can I just change this and that and it would still work? Or is there some uh, interesting historical reason and this is important so sometimes it's I mean, also just hard to change because you don't know how the <laughs> customers are using stuff what you can do is take the base camp approach and every four years just start a new system and the new customers do slowly migrate from like allow you to migrate from one version to another and if you have Like you tell explicitly customers that you are not going to add any new features to, to the old system, but if it works for them. I don't know. I mean, this is, has, of course, also its downsides because there's always some work you have to put into that stuff, right? Oh, yeah. There's also some upgrades of various parts of your system, be it the Ruby version or whatever that you have to do. And then it just gets, gets progressively harder if you don't do that stuff. Yeah, I think that one of the, one of the unsung heroes of of software development is being i i mean cutting edge or bleeding edge that's a, a tad too much but being up to date and and that yeah it 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 just it, it's one way to have to be forced to have discipline <laughs> in how yeah. you write your code i mean it's again it is also again the same thing right you either mm -hmm. can wait for a long time Like when some, until someone leaves and you don't have the knowledge and then you have to do this upgrade of whatever systems all at the same time, because I don't know, something is, there are no security updates for whatever you're using anymore, or you do it all the time and you always stay more or less up to date. And then it's just part of your daily habits to upgrade stuff and sort of get it over with. And then it's sort of ingrained and it's probably easier to do most of the time anyway. You were talking about tracking it down, tracking down the how silos you are. Did you experience anything like that? Yes, we actually put it into our KPIs. Mm -hmm. um, and we basically had a list of our projects. And then whoever thought they were comfortable working on uh, a project, they would put their name down, basically. So sort of self-assessment. Okay. And then you could say, hey... For this project, there's exactly one person uh, that is sort of below whatever we want to achieve. We say, I don't know, for a normal system, we want to have at least two people who think they can easily work on stuff. If it's something that is really, really critical to our system, we said we want to have, wanted to have three. And then you can sort of, with that stuff, you can basically come up with a number and yeah, that's a turn solid it into number. a KPI, basically. That's interesting. Another day we're going to talk about 
key metrics and KPIs. I'm curious. I don't know. It is hard. It's a, it's a hard topic, especially. Yeah. K- KPIs are, they work when you introduce them correctly, I think, or they can, but oftentimes the way they are introduced just produces so much, I don't know, let's call it negative energy <laughs> Yeah. from your teams that they are basically doomed to fail from the beginning. I mean, the, as always, the system optimized for the measurements. So, <laughs> All right. So this sounds like this should be the end of our episode today. Yes. So Monica, where can people find you? Hopefully inside today. Yes, definitely inside. I spend a couple of hours outside. That's enough for the whole weekend. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they can find me on Twitter at KFMolly with an I. Um, and they can find me on GitHub if you're curious uh, and uh, Dev2 as at Nearnet or, you know, here and there on the internet. <laughs> and you can find me on Twitter as UJH. Same thing on GitHub. And then you can uh, read my blog at urbanhafner.com. I think there's one blog post up. <laughs> it's one more than mine. So... <laughs> And if you want to get in touch with us, you can write us uh, either on Twitter or anything where you want to uh, can find us, or you can email us uh, via hosts at expandingbeyond.it. Yes. And if you like this podcast, it would be super helpful for us if you were to uh, tell someone about it, either in person or, uh, I don't know, on one of your social media platforms. And of course, we would be, uh, we would appreciate a review on iTunes or mm-hmm. anywhere else. Yes, reviews uh, on iTunes or other stores would uh, help us also get a little bit more visibility. So that would be highly, highly appreciated. All right. So have a nice evening, uh, Monica, and whatever part of the day our listeners <laughs> have right now. You too. Enjoy your night, your evening. Bye-bye. Until next time. Bye.